Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. It is Thursday, friends, and as many of you already know, that means this is our Fashion History Mystery Minisode when we answer listener questions. And Cass, today's topic came to us from a listener, not in the form of a question, but rather a postcard. Um, And it's a postcard that has been on the front of my fridge for such a long time that the other day I glanced at it and it struck me that I was like, Oh, no, I'm such a jerk. I never thanked her. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I think you've actually moved twice since you told me that Holly brought us this postcard from Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. There was there was a temporary apartment situation before our new place was done. So this postcard has traveled quite a bit. And it's from one of our listeners, Erin, who most likely hails from Pittsburgh. Because she didn't say where she was from, but I'm guessing it's Pittsburgh. And she sent a postcard to us at the Atlanta iHeart Media offices, which was received by our executive producer, Holly Fry, who many of you probably already know as the co-host of Stuff You Missed in History Class. And she brought it to me one night when we were having dinner in New York. She was like, oh, look, I have listener mail for you. Yeah, and I actually seem to remember you text me a picture of the postcard, and it features a painting of the Peter Paul Rubens portrait of the Princess de Condé, Charlotte Marguerite. And it, this painting dates to about 1610. She is wearing the most beautiful, sumptuous gown. It's beyond words. It's this peachy orange satin that's encrusted with gold braid and embellishments, and it's scattered with pearls. Her sleeves display slashing, which was incredibly fashionable in both menswear and womenswear in the 17th century. As also was the ruff that she's wearing, which is in multiple (laughs) layers. And one of the layers is of linen or muslin that is so fine that it's transparent. And behind that is showing off a row of what initially appears to be lace, but it's almost certainly cut work. And, And that would be where a solid piece of fabric is cut in a manner so that the majority of the fabric is actually avoided, it's taken away. And the remaining fabric Um, forms a design that mimics the effect of lace. And initially, this may seem like a shortcut until you realize that the fact that the the raw edges of this fabric have to be overcast with thousands and thousands of stitches to turn it into a wearable piece of clothing. It's insane when you see these cutwork pieces (laughs) up close. Your mind is kind of blown immediately. And dress listeners, if you've ever wondered how exactly ruffs and collars held their shapes during this era, well, it's it's kind of a combo of a lot of starch, but also ruff supporters, which were molded standing structures of wire. And those rose up from behind the back of the neckline of a bodice. So basically, it's like, please wear said wire contraption to support your ruff, ladies and gentlemen. And also, if we could further trouble you ladies for a second, could you please also strap around your waist this enormous cone, which is known as a farthingale, to hold out your skirts? This would be really great if you could wear all of this wire and cane sculpture on your personage to support your fashions. Signed, yours affectionately, fashion. Yeah, and this ensemble worn in the painted portrait of the Princess de Condé is truly awe-inspiring, as is also the dress's doppelganger realized in real life by the artist Isabelle de Borchgrave. 
Isabel may be familiar to some of our listeners already for her exquisite reproductions of historic garments, a feat she realizes not in silks, velvets, not in lace, but in paper. Yes, it is mind-boggling when you see these pieces in person. And her work has appeared in countless museum exhibitions around the world, including one our listener Erin wrote to us about at the Frick Pittsburgh. The paper reproduction of the Condé dress was a specific commission based on a portrait in the museum's holdings. And it was shown as part of de Borchgrave's exhibition, Fashioning Art from Paper. And the De Condé dress appeared alongside paper renditions of Italian Renaissance gowns, ballet russe costumes, and Mario Fortuny pleated masterpieces. Fashioning Art from Paper is now currently on view at the Flint Institute of the Arts in Flint, Michigan. So we thought this was actually the perfect time to chat about the work of this incredible artist of fashion history. So a little bit about Isabel. She was born in 1946 in Brussels, where she still resides. And from her earliest memories, she recalls her obsession with drawing. And she actually says that her father let her draw on anything she wanted, including the walls, as long as she repainted them when she was done. So talk about family support. Yeah, my parents let me paint on my bedroom walls when I was growing up, which was pretty cool, too. Yeah. I had several different incarnations of wall murals when I was a teenager. (laughs) Um, But Isabel left school at age 14 after years of conflict with her teachers because they didn't really seem to understand her. And she says that she would often draw and paint while she was in class because it helped her pay attention to their lectures when she was doing both at the same time. But but no really, really got this and and thought that she was rebelling. So so this was really met with repeated punishments and and she'd had enough, essentially. Um, So she did go on to study art at the Academy Royale de Beaux-Arts in Brussels. Um, And there she had a good time, but she was also a little bit frustrated by the emphasis placed on charcoal drawing because what she really wanted to do was work in color. So after a brief foray into advertising, Isabel quickly realized this was not for her, and she began giving art lessons to local children. One day, in the need of a new dress for a party, she painted an expanse of paper and fashioned this into a dress. So her experiment actually blossomed into a business where she offered her own hand-painted and printed textiles, as well as garments and accessories. So together with her husband, she opened La Tour de Babel a combination of an atelier and boutique. And they had this entire building, which was given over to the Endeavor, which featured a silk screening workshop on the first floor, a boutique on the second floor. There was a silk painting studio and fitting rooms on the third and fourth floor, and even a salon de couture. So the couple lived apparently on the fifth floor above the business that they ran for 13 years. It would be a visit to the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in the mid-90s that would change the future of Isabel's work. And after visiting the show with her friend Rita Brown, who was a costume designer and um, costume and textile conservator, she remarked upon leaving the museum as they were walking down the front steps that she would like to attempt to recreate some of the dresses they had just seen in the exhibition using only paper. And she went on to invite Rita, who was living in Canada at the time, to come to Brussels to execute this collaboration. And about this moment, Isabella has remarked, quote, I don't know what happened in my mind, but I went crazy. (laughs) 
or not, April, because Rita did come to Brussels and they created one of the dresses using paper. And on completion, Isabel tucked it away in a little used room in her house, citing the fact that she has dogs and she didn't want them to ruin it. Oh, yeah. And this is something that both you and I can empathize with for sure, Cass. <laughs> oh, for <right>? sure. <laughs> I actually just texted you. I was like, I'm going to be late. I'm at the dog groomer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Isabel didn't really kind of give much thought to this paper creation until one evening when she was entertaining a group of professional colleagues. And she opened this little used room for use for the party. And all of a sudden... Now the world would learn of her uncanny ability to manipulate paper. And her guests saw this dress and they were so stunned that they insisted that she continue on with her work so it could be displayed in museums and galleries. Isabel says she was actually shocked by the reaction of her friends, saying she had never considered showing it to anyone and that it was, quote, like someone asked me to drive a plane. So that's how foreign of a possibility an exhibition was to her. But apparently it was not at all unrealistic because six months later, she says she had an exhibition in Brussels. And as her work developed on in France in 1998, that exhibition, well, it was quickly followed by one at the museum at FIT in 1999. The past 20 years have now seen Isabel's life-size paper reproductions of garments appear in countless museums in countless countries. In 2007, she recreated Christian Dior's iconic bar suit in paper for the Benaki Museum in Athens. In 2008, she took over three entire floors of the Fortuny Museum in Venice, where she created these exquisite trompe l'oeil accuracy level um, reproductions of Mario Fortuny's signature fashion and textiles. And we will, of course, post images of some of these on our Instagram, but it should also be pointed out that the colors and motifs of the original garments are all hand-painted onto the paper by Isabel herself. Tiny pearls and lace are mimicked in paper, and while she now does have a staff of 10 people that assist her in her creations, seeing them in person makes one wonder how this is all possible. Which becomes... Even more all the incredible when you realize that oftentimes Isabel has never even seen the original garment that she's cre recreating in three dimensions. Wow. And this is because, I know, this is because <laughs> she often works from painted portraits um, to create what are ultimately three-dimensional sculptures. And, and she has said that it really doesn't make any difference to her cast, whether whether she's working from a garment that's depicted in a painting or maybe one, like a historic garment she's actually seen in a museum collection. Because she says that in her mind's eye, she all sees them immediately in the round. And, and, and I would guess that this is no doubt aided by quite a bit of research from one of the 5,000 books on costume history that reside in her studio's library. I don't know. I don't even know if you and I, between the two of us, have 5,000 books. <laughs> well, we're working on it. I think probably <laughs> by the... <laughs> give us a couple decades and you and I will have amassed that. And yeah. I just want to say, I think it's really cool that she works from extant garments. But to me, I think it's incredible when she's recreating paint, you know, garments that mm -hmm. only exist in paintings that probably existed, you know, at one time because she's really bringing that to life for us in a way that we never would experience otherwise because, you know, garments from those hundreds of years ago just don't exist anymore. So, yeah, so cool. And of her work, Isabel has said, because I am self-taught, I have to dream to make other people dream. 
And I would like to point out that that dream is in Technicolor cast because apparently outside her studio, there's a sign, which I think is very charming, that reads, enter if you're fond of color. (laughs) So if you are fond of color, you can catch fashioning art from paper at the Flint Institute of Arts in Flint, Michigan until September 8th, 2019. And I believe there's also an exhibition of 40 pieces of her work at the Obro Castle in Sweden up now until September 1st. This fall, her exhibitions will travel to both Luxembourg and Atlanta, Georgia, where it will be on view at the SCAD Museum of Fashion and Film beginning October 24th, 2019. And if any of you check out those exhibitions, please send us pictures if you can take them. We always love to see uh, these exhibitions that we can't always make ourselves. Yes. Um, So thank you, Erin, for the postcard once again. And everyone... Run to your nearest web-enabled device if you haven't already seen Isabel's work. It's Isabel de Borchgrave. Check it out and you your mind will also be blown. Just saying. <laughs> and speaking of listener mail, I actually just wanted to share a message we received about our recent Of Beards and Men episode. This actually comes from April Barlow, who wrote to us from Texas saying... I particularly enjoy the episode on beards. As an IT worker in an oil and gas company, I have seen men's facial hair, corporate dress codes, and class distinctions combined due to somewhat unique safety regulations. So a poisonous gas called hydrogen sulfide is a very real hazard in the oil patches, especially for those who are working on the drilling rigs. Every worker has a personal H2S meter clipped on their shirt, and a windsock at each site shows everyone to run upwind if a meter goes off. Men who work in the field are required to be clean-shaven so that there is a tight seal on their face if they have to wear a gas mask or a ventilator in an emergency. As a result, you can tell with a literal glance if a man is a blue-collar field or a white-collar office worker. A typical way a man celebrates his promotion is to suddenly sport an awe-inspiring beard. This was especially true during the height of the hipster movement a few years ago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I love this so much. And it, because it's a really poignant example of how not only dress, but also beauty and grooming practices are part of how we all perform identity. So thank you to my fellow April for sharing this with all of us. Uh, Cass, I think that does it for us this week. Yes? It does. Okay. So perhaps you will all consider how you fashion your own identity next time you get dressed. Please tune in this coming Tuesday for our full-length episode. If you'd like to write to us with a question for a future fashion history mystery mini-sode, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is now the part where we talk again about our upcoming trip to Paris. Yay! We are are still nearly a year out from June 2020, which is when it will happen, but a lot of you have already registered your interest. So in the next couple weeks, we will be posting the itinerary for the trip and official registration will open. So we'll give more details on that soon. But um, in the meantime, if you would like to request to be kept up to date on these developments, you can visit likemindstravel.com, check out the events tab, and then they'll ask for your email address and we will send you updates. And we are very, very excited. Yeah, we have lots of fun things up our sleeves. Absolutely. And as always, a special thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, who hand delivers our listener mail across state lines and everyone (laughs) else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Catch you Tuesday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.